I would encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. It's been said of this psalm that it is one that has been used as a song and has words in it that are very applicable. That's one of the things that happens at Crossway Christian Church. We are very selective about the music and the songs that we sing. It's really nice to have a melody that's catchy, that is easy to follow, but really, it's about what is in the word that should touch our hearts. And in this one, this psalm has been used uh, for a song. Commentators don't exactly agree on what its original use was. It might have been when the Ark of the Covenant was coming in and out of the temple. It might have been at the dedication of the temple when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into it. But in that point, we would have to understand that David is the author of this psalm, and when the uh, temple was made, was after his death, his son Solomon, but it could have been used for that, and it also could have been used by those that were returning from victory of war as a song of triumph. But one thing is sure, it speaks of the spiritual kingdom of God, not just a physical kingdom like David was the king of. It tells of the domain of God, and it is vast. It covers all. The psalm contains a blessed prophecy respecting Christ and the glory of his kingdom. As we read and study this part of God's word today, may we see and understand better the spiritual kingdom of God and how believers are, to, are a part of his kingdom, body, mind, and soul. So follow along as I read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not speak deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient days, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We have to understand that this is not a comprehensive analogy of the kingdom of God, but I do believe that in just these short verses, uh, David gives us some great examples and insights into the kingdom of God. First, we see the God of ownership, the God of ownership in verses 1 and 2. 
It says that God, that God has absolute propriety over all of creation and our dwelling in it. Even though I can't say it, propriety, I like the word. Because it makes us think of the proprietor of a store. Back in the day when mom and dad owned the stores, they were the owner. They were the proprietor. Everything in there was theirs, and it was run their way. That's the essence of what is being said here. God made everything, and it's his, period. We shouldn't think that heavens being so vast and earth being, by comparison, so small that God is too busy thinking of all the things of the universe that he has just left earth where it is. No, scientists and many others may still be discovering galaxies upon galaxies, the vastness we do not know, but none of it amazes God. He holds all of it in his hand, and earth also. I didn't know exactly where to put this in the message, so I thought I'd start right out at the beginning. Everybody does not believe that God created everything. That's no news flash. But for me, starting in kindergarten through eighth grade, going to a school where Christ was spoken of and taught every day, I knew nothing other than creation. But there is something called evolution. And I found it interesting this week that I have this thing that I do that uh, one of the apps on my phone will give you famous people that are born on that day in history. Now, why exactly some of them are famous, I don't know. But this one's name I did know, and his name was Charles Darwin. He was thought of as one of the creators of the thought of evolution. Not knowing that much about it, I went to a great source, Wikipedia, <laughs> Wikipedia, and looked him up. And I just want to say partially what it said. Best known for his contributions to the science of evolution, he established that all species of life descended over time from common ancestors. I take it by their tone that they're buying into that. But what was more interesting was part of his life. He lived in the 1800s in England, and he went to a college. His first place of higher education was Christ College. It was a constituent college of the University of Cambridge. Christ College was named after Jesus Christ. And for the first 70 years, that was his second name, the first 70 years that it was in, in existence, it was named God's House. I believe that Charles Darwin was exposed to who God is and that God created the heavens and the earth. And the other part that I found interesting was that every day, in their great hall where the meals are served, the prayer is the same. And I want to read to you that prayer. 
Christ, the gladdener of all, without whom nothing is sweet, nothing pleasant, bless we beseech you the food and drink, your servants, which you have now provided for the nourishment of our body, and grant that we may use these gifts of yours for your praise and enjoy them with grateful minds, and that just as our body is nourished by the, the bounty, bountiful foods, so our mind may feed on the spiritual nourishment of your word. Through you, our Lord, amen. If he was there, he heard that prayer. We see that God is the one that provides everything, the food that we have, and the nourishment for souls comes through his word. My point, everybody does not believe that God created everything. But that doesn't make it true or false. God's word is true. He created all that there is. But the psalmist tells us more than just that. He tells us exactly what has God created. He said that he made all that there is, and some commentators had quite a list of different things that is encompassed by that. We might think of things, but I just want to read through some of what was specifically mentioned. We have to understand that he always will reserve ownership of every one of these things, and we are the tenants of them. But because of that, we see the fruits that it produces, the beasts and the trees, the cattle upon a thousand hills, our land and our houses, let me repeat that, our land and our houses, all the improvements that are made of this earth by the skill and the industry of man are all his, all parts and regions of the earth and all are the Lord's and are all under his eye and hand. All that comes to us as mankind is but lent to us, and my favorite is, everything in the depths of the seas is his, and he knows where to find them. But there's more than just God owning the world. It also says, all those that dwell therein. He owns us, ourselves, every part of us. Our bodies are not our own. Our souls are not our own. Even those who do not acknowledge him, they are his. Every aspect of who we are is made and owned by God. I'm going to speak of just the tongue. He is the God over all of us, but just that one member, that one thing. God's word says over and over again, it is an unruly thing. It is hard to keep in check. It may spread lies. It may profane others. It does things that should not be. It is hard for us to keep track of. But it ought not to be that way. It should be in submission to him because it is his. It should be in devotion and be devoted to his service. And as his as peculiar chosen people, and we are to be in devotion to him, 
We should understand that that does not come to him because he needs anything from us. He gets no benefit from us. We are his creation, and, it, and he is the one that is worthy of all that we are. Because he owns all that we are, we should be thankful, and whatever blessings he chooses to share with us, we should take gratefully and give him and acknowledge that they all come from him. A story to illustrate ownership. After basic training in the Army in the spring in Kentucky, it was becoming summer and I was sent to Alabama for more training. And on arrival there, we weren't quite ready to get more, uh, our next classes to start. So one morning, the sergeant brought us all out and said, we're going to give you the day off. You can go down to the lake that we, got, we have here. We're going to give you a bus ride down there and a lunch and have a good time. He said, but I want to warn you. He said, I don't care what the color of your skin is, and especially you boys from the, south, from the north, you can only last one hour in this sun in Alabama. Any more than that, and you're going to be burnt to a crisp. And if that happens, he says, I tell you, I'm going to tell you right now what's going to happen. You're going to get court-martialed. He says, you're going to get court-martialed for dereliction of duty and failure to report. Because tomorrow morning you're going to be at sick call and you're going to wonder what you can put on this pain to have it stop. But he says, we're also going to court martial you for destruction of government property. <laughs> and he was serious. It came to me then that Uncle Sam owned me, but he's in line behind God. God owns all. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The first two verses not only say what the Lord owns, but why he has ownership of them. First, he made it. He formed it. He founded it, he fitted it for the use of mankind. He made it out of nothing. The idea is his and of his own mind. He made it himself and it is for himself. He is the sole, absolute owner. There are many of us that have talents. Maybe it's woodworking. Maybe it's putting together recipes and cooking things. Maybe it's making gift cards that Hallmark would be envious of. But in all of those things, we have to remember, we took other material, maybe had a great idea, but we didn't come up with all that there is to make it. But that's what God did. He made everything. Second, he made it, and no one else could. What does that mean? He's omnipotent. There's one of those omni words. What does it mean? He's all-powerful. 
Nobody else could take all of what was the universe, shape it, form it, bring it together, that man could live in it. No one had the capability of doing that other than God. And third, he continues what he has established. He's sovereign over all. He just didn't whirl all these things out in space and hope that everything goes well, that planet A doesn't hit planet B, that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, whatever. All of that is handled because he is sovereign. So for this world and the fullness of it, whether it's thing or creature, it's all God's, but now the psalmist raises to another world, one much beyond this one. This world and all the blessings that God has given us in it will someday pass away. This other world will last for an eternity. So let's look at that in verses 3 through 6. The God of kinship. The God of kinship. I think that's kind of a made-up word by me. I think we all know what kin is. That's our family, those that we know and are part of. And he is the God of that kinship. In verse 3, we see the psalmist ask two questions back to back. And this is part of why that this psalm is thought to be a song because it has kind of a cadence to it. It repeats things as it's going along, and we see these two questions. I've changed them a little bit, so we get maybe a better meeting out of them. The first one is, what shall I do to rise to the high place above this world? What should I do to be in the presence of a holy God? And the answer to both of those questions is, we can do nothing. If it not, were not for the power of God himself, through the work of the Holy Spirit and his word, working in hearts, changing hearts and minds, we would not be able to ascend that hill. There is nobody that would be justified in standing in the presence of a holy God. He is the God of kinship, the God that has adopted together a family for his own. Through the atoning work of Christ, he has drawn a people unto himself and has made sons and daughters. We are heirs because he is the one that has brought us together through his work. But the psalmist also says something about this kinship with God. With it comes responsibilities. It has specific characteristics listed that those that are part of the kinship of the one true God should display. And the first one says they should have clean hands. Not just washed clean hands. They should keep themselves from gross acts of sin. Nothing outwardly that we do should be sinful. 
we know that we are a sinful creature by nature. But when we were redeemed, when Christ came into our lives, we have the power to fight against sin. We should not be leading in open, outward sin. That should not be part of us. It also says we should have pure hearts. It isn't outwardly that we should be clean only, but also inside of us. No secret heart impurities. No things inside of our heart where we have malice and discontent, where, where we are envious, where we are one that creates strife among others. Those are inside of our heart and can come out very easily and quickly, and it should not be part of God's kin. They are those that their affections are not set on the things of this world. The scripture says, what is false? I actually like a couple other ways that that's mentioned better than what is false. The word vanity and idols is used. The affections of this world, all of those things that have a draw for us, should not be what brings us, should not be the desire that we look for. They are people that should deal honestly with God and man. When I thought about that, I said to myself, which one of those two is probably easier to do? Deal honestly with God or deal honestly with man? And I thought, well, maybe man, but actually, when I caught myself, I was changing the question around and I was really saying, which one is easier to deceive? We can probably deceive man and act like we're being honest with him more than we can God. But God's going to know that we're being dishonest with man, so we're still dishonest. We have to have a nature that our honesty is above reproach with both. If we continue on in that path, it always stays easier. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the last two, I think, really go together. We should be a praying people and we should be people that join together with other believers. That's what believers do when they get together is they pray for each other, they worship, they fellowship. It should be part of who we are. These are the nature and the characteristics of the kin of God. But because God has drawn a, a peculiar people to himself, he also gives them and they receive particular blessings. And they are all the fruits and the gifts of God's favor. If you wanted the gifts and the favor of any one individual, wouldn't it be the God that is so powerful that he created everything? But let's remember one thing. We're not saying that we can use God to get what we wanted. There are those that openly preach that, probably for their own gain. But God loves to be gracious to those that he loves. But he also gives the gift of justification and sanctification. We are made right before God one time, 
by the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we have the power in his spirit to be sanctified, which is always drawing closer and being more Christ-like in all that we do and say. And last, they are the ones that shall be saved. None shall be lost. All that are called, they shall be brought safely to heaven to their endless satisfaction. See, salvation equals deliverance. We will be brought out of this veil of tears to himself, and in his presence, we will have joy like we have never seen before, could not comprehend, and it will take an eternity to experience it. And no two days will probably ever be the same. The psalm ends, as I said, in my introduction with a, pro- a prophecy of Jesus Christ and the glory of his kingdom. And we see this in verses 7 through 10, the God of kingship. These last verses of the psalm give four examples of the kingship of God. I'm not saying that there's four interpretations of this, and I'm going to give you the four, and you can choose them. No, I believe they're all there, and there might even be more if we really dig and refine the truth of God's word. But the first one in this scripture describes the king of glory in the form of the Ark of the Covenant entering the temple. Now, that's more than once that I've mentioned this Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't know what that is, God ordained his people to build a box. Make it very ornate. It was to be carried by poles. Very specific, the instructions. What was to be placed in it? One of the things was the original Ten Commandment tablets, and some other things. But what it represented was God being among them. They could see a manifestation physically of him being there. And it showed his power. In the scripture that I listed, you can go to to see part of that, and that's in Joshua 3. And what is happening in that piece of scripture is, for the second time, God's people are going to cross through water on dry land. They're at the Jordan River. And the Ark of the Covenant is being carried. And as the men that are carrying it enter the water, the power of God opens the water up, stops it so that they can cross on dry land. Joshua would would say, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the God of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. They could see the power of him at work and could relate to it because of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a, a visible representation of God and his power. But also seen in the scripture is God in his words standing at the heart of believers ready to come in. 
We've probably seen a picture. Jesus, at least a likeness of whoever thinks that that's what Jesus looks like, standing, knocking, coming in. It's he and his word ready to enter in. And the person with great readiness at that door and the gates wants to throw it open, wants that word, wants him to come in and to be fellowshipping with him. And with all reverence, believers remember how great a God is that would come to individuals. But also, without a doubt, this points to the Christ of whom the ark with the mercy seat is a type. See, we said that the Ark of the Covenant represented God in their midst. Well, all that Jesus Christ is, all the representations that we know of, are now fulfilled in him in a physical presence coming into this world, being among mankind. And what he accomplished was death on the cross that brought victory over sin. But after that sin, I'm sorry, after that had been accomplished, he returned again to heaven. Now think about when Jesus was born, how the heavens lit up with angels singing songs of praise at just his meek birth. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Christ triumphantly returned to heaven. Think of a football stadium. What do they hold? 50, 60,000 people? And the home team makes that last touchdown? And the roar that must go up from the crowd? Now take that and think of 10,000 stadiums. And the angels and all the heavenly hosts proclaiming his victory and welcoming back to the seat and the throne next to his father that he deserves. His battle was won. Not only the victory over hell and death, but also the reward for us of heaven and life. But there's also, I think, the entrance of Christ and to the hearts and souls of believers by the word and by his word and spirit. The presence of Christ in us is again like that ark that they would see. It sanctifies them. It sets them apart. He being uh, in us through the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifies us to him but it requires that the doors of the heart be open and not only that we allow admission, but that we give ownership rightly back to where it belongs, that God is Lord and owner of our heart and our life. But with that also comes great responsibility. We must give him praise and honor. We must hunger after him with every part of us. We must continue to seek to know him better, more deeply, and more completely, and we must trust him and to love him above all. 
lyrics of a song that come from Scripture. Scripture and the truth of it that is in the lyrics of a song. They go together. David used them together. God has shown us a new part of his kingdom. He is the God of ownership. He owns all that there is. He is the God of kinship. He is the one that draws a people to himself. And he is the king over all. For believers, like David, the example that we see for us as believers, we should ask ourselves, is he Lord over every aspect of our heart and life? Are those those silent places that we do not want to admit before him where he still does not rule? We must strive after him to be God and king of all. There might be those here this morning that don't understand, have never heard before that he created all that there is, that he's not only the God of creation, but he's also the God of salvation, one and the same. He was the one that created mankind. He is the one that redeemed mankind from the loss of sin. We rebelled against him. We did not want him to be Lord. And forever, that kinship with him was broken. But I invite you today, if that is you, to continue to seek the truth of God's word. As the Holy Spirit works on your heart, that you understand that he wants to dwell and be in Lord of your life again. He is the one that restores his own to himself. Continue to seek him. Let's pray. Lord, you are the king of all. It's easy for us to say that you own everything because you created it. But sometimes, Lord, we know that our very actions make us liars because sometimes we can be possessed by our own possessions and we say that we are sorry for that sin that we strive more to seek after you, Lord, that we want you to come in and be Lord and reign over everything that we are, everything that you have given us, everything that you allow us to do in this life, may it be Christ-centered, as the one Lord that was the example that led the perfect life. We know that we will fall short, Lord, but if we are truly part of your kingdom, under your dominion, it should be what we seek after in all that we are. Continue to lead us and direct us. We thank you for those victories that we have, and we also thank you for being a merciful and just God and showing so many great blessings to us. And even more specifically, for those blessings here at Crossway, Lord. You have shown your mercy to us time and time again. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.